Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You've heard it that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, give him your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Let us pray. Our Father, we acknowledge your glory, your beauty, and your perfection. We desire to imitate your ways. Reveal to us this day how we may do those very things. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Years ago, the Russian author Leo Tolstoy, when he was reading this passage, he said, and this is not an exact quote, but that's okay because I'm not an exact Tolstoy aficionado. He said, I finally seen what the church has missed for the last 1,800 years. That we are called to never oppose our enemies. This led Tolstoy to pacifism. And that has been a significant wing of the church's teaching even before that time. But I, I will warn you of something. Whenever you hear someone say, I just saw something that the church has missed for the last X number of years, not just one red flag should go up, about 40 should go up. But at the same time, despite our natural, because we know how these verses are abused, we naturally may get a little flustered when we read the passage. We may think, oh no, what is this? What's coming? Well, I'm not going to lie. These are hard words. 
Our tendency is to, is to go to the other and what we can't. And you've all heard preachers do this. You know what this is like. You, you have a text and we spend 90% of the time telling you all the things that the text doesn't mean. And about 10% covering what it does. And that 10% won't actually affect anything that we do anyway. What's the point? Jesus didn't waste his breath. So let me ask you this. What is your role in the expansion of God's kingdom? We all know that sin can limit our usefulness to the kingdom. But otherwise, we think that the kingdom grows by people doing really big and awesome things. Things that get your name in at least Christian history books, if not actual history books. And then when we're honest, we know that, well, for some of us, we're barely able to pray with our family every day or get supper on the table without some type of blow-up coming in and just ruining the whole thing. Have you ever had a day where you thought, I've been doing really well and I, don't, I can't count too many sins, and then all of a sudden something just hits you. You're not even expecting it. And, and then you think, well, that was a, what was the point? I, I was trying so hard and I was doing so well, and then I just got blindsided. Well, no use now. Might as well go ahead and bark at everybody, get it over with. If that's you, I've got good news. Jesus' words in this passage aren't the precursor to God's kingdom. They're not the things you have to do before you get to God's kingdom. These words in the Sermon on the Mount are where the kingdom begins. And that, brothers and sisters, should change the way we view the Sermon on the Mount. We should not look at this and allow Satan to rob the word that Jesus sends. When we say, it's too hard, I don't understand it, and fill in the blank. Whatever excuses come to your mind. We think of these commands often as unpleasant, but necessary. We obey them the same way we would push through a series of thorn bushes. We grit our teeth, we close our eyes, we trudge on, and we try not to complain too much about what's expected. But that's not it. Jesus is teaching here how to grow in virtue. Virtue is the strength by which Jesus himself, I mean, he said multiple times when he would heal someone, he, he said that he felt virtue leave, go out of him. It, virtue is the strength by which he, he healed, he preached, and he cast out devils. Now, I'm not saying that if you, just, if you live a perfect enough life that you can go out and just, you know, start healing everybody. So, so don't take it that way. But virtue is important. If you believe the expansion of the kingdom begins with just having the right mental system, 
And at the right time, after, you, after your system is perfected, then you find a way to, you know, to, to gain the levers of power or your people gain the levers of power. If that's what bringing in the kingdom means, then something so simple as the patient practice of virtue sounds kind of foolish. You don't gain anything that way. But that's exactly what our Lord did. If Jesus had to first wear the crown of thorns before the crown of glory, what makes us think we're any different? Only by embracing the crown of thorns will people recognize our similarity to Christ. The nations will come into the kingdom when God's children walk in the gentle beauty and the glory of our King. So what does this look like? In these last three portions, these last three teachings in Matthew 5. Well, it begins with something like simple speech, as he talks about in verses 33 through 37. Words for modern men are tools. They're tools to gain what we want. We know exactly how to use our words so that we can commit just enough but not too much. Because if we commit too much, then we know we're bound. But it, we have to commit enough that people will trust us. We approach, and not only when we speak, but when we hear others speak, we approach speech with cynicism. Think about this. How, how often do you take what a public servant says at his word or someone who aspires to public service? I mean, even just the time, how many times just the word public service elicits a snicker? Think service? Yes, to yourself. But that's not the way it should be, right? Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 14 that we are called... We are called to, in malice, to be His children. We're called to adopt not foolishness, not ignorance, but we are called to be children when we hear things. There should be something in us that is both discerning, but also that trust, and not, all, not even necessarily the person, but trust that God behind the people, whether or not we consider them good or wicked, that there is a God and Father in whose heart the king's hand belongs. And like the rivers of water, he is turning it wherever he will. Jesus says that the proclivity of men to swear on places objects, and so on, is useless. Now, now, why would they do that? Well, re remember, you could not swear on the name of Yahweh. That, that, that's wrong. So what do you do? You find all these other things on which you can swear. You could swear by heaven. You can swear by 
the earth. You could just you know, swear by something in order for people to know that you, they should take you seriously, but you're not actually invoking God's name. So, you know, it, hopefully it gives you a little bit of wiggle room. Sounds kind of familiar, right? Trying to get people to believe you without actually committing too much. Our words, Jesus is saying here, should be expressions of what is true and identifying what's false. He begins with the commandment, don't swear falsely. It's one of the Ten Commandments. We all know that that's true. But he goes on, it's, it's not just about not speaking a lie. And, and as parents, we know that we deal with this with our kids. You, you, you ask your kids, did you wash your hands? Well, yes. Did you use soap? No. Wish you hadn't asked that part. And you can multiply the examples. Does that count? Well, Jesus is saying that is the type of thing we, we should avoid trying to walk that line that's so fine. Instead, be plain in your speech. He also says that our speech can't change anything. We can't change our hair. We can't change our being by our words. But our speech can reflect what is true. It can reflect what is true and it can also manifest what is true. Now some may take this and say, see, Jesus said to be plain in your speech. That gives me permission to say exactly what I think in no uncertain terms when someone challenges me or opposes me. Well, he's going to get to that here in just a second. But suffice to say, that's not it. it, it this is not permission to use our words as a club with which to hammer people into submission. But it's the, a call to ensure that our words and our corresponding actions reveal the truth and never obscure the truth. That's one way that we reflect God before the world. But also, and, and each of these I'll grant you, it gets tougher and tougher. Now, after simple speech, he calls us to absorb evil in verses 38 through 42. He, he refers to the command from the Torah, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now this principle that, that, that later on comes to us is known as the lex talionis in Latin. Let the punishment fit the crime. It's a protection for the perpetrator of evil that the punishment for what he has done will not be greater than the crime that he committed. So this is, this is not, Jesus' words are not a condemnation of appropriate civil justice when crime is involved. So, so murder and theft and assault as appropriate. Paul says in Romans 13, that's what civil magistrates are for. That's what God has given them for. 
But just above Romans 13, in Romans 12, he will repeat what Jesus says. In different words, he will, he will recall the words, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So Paul says, just as Jesus does here, that we must not embrace revenge. But it's not just that we don't embrace revenge. He reveals a, Jesus reveals a principle by which we are called to live. The words in verse 39 are, are sometimes translated differently. So in, in my version, he says in verse 39, resist not an evil person. Uh, or in the ESV says, resist not the one who is evil. The authorized version says, do not resist evil. So what is he saying? Well, it's probably, it's easiest to understand. On one hand, yes, there is the person who's, who, who does, who sins against us, who commits the evil against us. And we are not to lash out at that person. But in all of this, we have to remember we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We, of course, must resist evil in the sense that we are called as husbands especially to protect our families. That's, Jesus is not speaking against that here. Or in James 4, 7, we're told, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So Jesus is not contradicting what's said there. But remember how Jesus explains his commands. And this is throughout Matthew 5. He gives a principle and then he gives illustrating examples. Examples that show what he's saying. So, so this portion, when it comes to, to receiving evil, is about how we react to personal offenses. The examples he gives are not crimes committed against someone that deserve and should receive legal recompense. But they are instead about insults. Jesus gives his scenarios are in the way of someone who just who slaps another person. So this is not an all-out fist fight, at least not yet. A slap is, an, is a direct assault on your honor. So for years in our civilization, if you slap someone, what does that mean? That means it's time to take this outside and not read Scripture together. When someone says, do we need to take this outside? What they're saying is, we're going to fight. And Jesus says, no. So you have a slap. Or uh, you have a lawsuit. Now, we're not talking about, you know, if, if someone says, you've got to give me, I'm, I'm suing you for $8 million, doesn't mean, no, you give them $10. Well, you may not have any million with which to give. So, so again, we're, we're talking about small things here. But, but if someone is treating you in what you consider an unjust way, how are you going to respond? Do you respond by dealing with it in the way that they will never again think of messing with you? Or do you receive it? 
And then there's compelled service, which Jews were required to give. Someone could be suborned for a time to, to, to carry a soldier's pack for a mile. Now, of course, we know what we all think about compelled government service, right? This, this principle has never been very popular among the masses for good reason. And as good Reformed Christians, we know that when our leader says, you must do X, we say, you in what army? But that's not the words of Jesus. So this cuts directly at our natural pride. Now, are there biblical means for responding to confrontation? Absolutely. Read on. Matthew 18 gives those. So, so there, are, there, are wis there are wisdom principles that we are called to apply. It doesn't mean that you must just lay down and get run over by every truck that wants to come. But we can so easily spend our time avoiding what Jesus says that we actually find a way to disobey. Jesus is saying, the principle he's teaching is pretty simple. You receive evil. Receive your insult, your pain, etc., without responding in kind. In other words, act like Jesus. This is exactly what he did. When he faced evil throughout his life, and especially in his final trial, I mean, we know that he, when he was, he, he was tempted, and he was, he was hit, he was beaten, he was slapped, and he took it. So he's not telling us something that he in turn did something different from it. In his work on the cross, he absorbed the sin of the world on himself. He, and, and this is, of course, what we know in the, the spiritual sense that he was bruised for our justification. He was wounded for our iniquities. But also, when it comes to the world, he had the Jews and the Romans, the representation literally of the nations of the world, he took their sin. They were coming, they all sinned against him. The world was sinning against him in that act. And he took it. So where does this start for us? Well, it begins in our home. The place where most of us are tempted on a significant, on a regular basis. Your spouse, your kids, or your brothers and sisters... And then, if life gets too rosy there, there's plenty of other people who will sin against you outside. And you'll have the opportunity to show them love as well. Now, now we say, I say we say because I've said this, and I'm just going to guess talking to enough people that you probably are tempted to say this too, but you don't understand what I just, what I faced. You don't understand what this person did. And I... I I understand. I don't. 
But I also know that what we are called to do is not anything that can be done simply by willpower. But Jesus died so that we could do this. He gave His life. He demonstrated what it's like. And then He has given us His Spirit so that we can in turn practice this. So when you're sinned against, that doesn't mean you just hold it all in. You just continue accumulating bitterness and resentment until one day you explode. No, that won't work. You must, you absolutely must take whatever offense you receive and hand it over to the one who's already taken it. And he's there and he's willing. He has demonstrated that he will take it. The one who took the sin on the world, the sin of the world on himself, will take whatever offense we receive. He already absorbed all of this and he destroyed it on the cross. So we're called to simple words. We're called to receive, to absorb evil. We're also called to love our enemies. Verses 43 through 48. So if all these previous things weren't enough, Jesus adds to it. We don't just imitate him in those previous ways. We're actually called to love those who come against us. This, this isn't just staying quiet and receiving it. This is going beyond. Now, there's no Old Testament command that says for us to hate our enemies. We're told plenty of places in the Old Testament to love our neighbors. The assumption that we can hate our enemies evolved over time. I mean, it's easy to think when the only thing we're called to do is love the people who are in our community. Well, what does that mean? And there are plenty of, I mean, we read in Scripture that, that God hates evil. We read about, you know, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. So we naturally think, well, I'm called to imitate God, therefore I can hate so-and-so, right? Or this person has done so much evil against God's people, therefore I can hate But Jesus, in expanding the commands here, he does not give us permission to hold on to hatred. Hatred is our natural response. It takes nothing supernatural to hate. We fall into this easily. Because we do see all the wickedness that goes on. We see wickedness that happens to us, to our families. Hatred is easy. And beware if you feel, the, the, if you, if you feel that you're giving per, yourself permission to justify it. I mean, no one has ever come to faith when they heard... I mean, no one ever came to faith through hatred. Have you ever heard someone say, who, who, who had just become a Christian, you know, I, I, was, I, I was opposing God, and then I looked in this Christian, I saw this Christian, and he looked me in the eye with hatred in his heart, 
and in his eyes. And, and he said, I can't stand you and, and you're going to go to hell. And I just, I, I felt like I wanted to be like that person. You never heard that testimony before. There's a reason. It's not the way it works. But how many times have you heard the testimony of saints who loved in seemingly impossible situations? And men and women brought to Christ in that. Jesus here, He turns the kingdom from only receiving, only things that you're called to do and, and you growing in virtue. Now, Jesus says, it's time to go on offense. But offense is not the kind of offense we want to go on. It's not lighting up the world with my lovely, fantastic, biting, satirical statements. That's our preferred brand of offense, and that's okay in very specific ways. But there's a lot more in Scripture about what about Jesus' commands here than there are about calling us to use other ways of going on offense. So the offense here, Jesus says, is bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? I mean, what's the point? They're not going to get it. But Jesus says specifically in verse 45 that you may be sons of your Father in heaven who causes the sun to rise on the evil and good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. When we love, when we bless, when we pray for, we are demonstrating, we are imitating the Father to the world. That's what it looks like. Now, there are times, yes, when true opposition to enemies is needed. We have saints of old who have worked and, and, and tried to establish things like what, what just war looks like. And that is a reasonable and faithful attempt. Not just an attempt, I believe largely successful in their own time for, for demonstrating what that looks like. But again, we're talking about you as a saint right now, living before those who are not in harmony with you. And here's where it gets tough. It's not just those people who are outside. Sometimes it's people in the church. That's really tough. Because you say, this person's supposed to be godly, and they're acting like this? They're doing this to me? What am I supposed to do with this? Bless, pray for, do good. Everything Jesus said up to now, again, it, it was our not responding with evil, but now it, it's pursuing good. So what happens then in a world where the church receives offense? Where they pursue righteousness? Where they speak clearly? 
and without hypocrisy and where the church loves her enemies. Well, when you have several hundred years of this, it looks like medieval Christendom. It, it, that's, I mean, that's, that's what we have. There was much more done, much more accomplished through the mission activities of the church, through going to places in the face of paganism where Christians knew they would be hated and persecuted and preaching the gospel anyway and serving those whom they could at the time than there was accomplished by armies demanding conversion through the sword. A great example of this uh, historical explanation is through a man named Alex Kreider's book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. These commands are all moving us to a point. That point is becoming whole or complete, as he says in verse 48, Be ye perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. No, he's not saying be sinless. It's not the meaning of the word. Yes, God the Father is sinless. But we can't be sinless. And Jesus is not saying you, you must be. But he's saying, therefore, verse 48, so if, when you've done these things that I've told you to do, you shall be whole. You shall be complete as your Father in heaven. So we are called to demonstrate, that is to reflect our Father on earth. We are the body of Christ, the representation of the incarnate God-man before the world. The world doesn't see the church as much just when we worship on Sunday. They see the church every day of the week. We rightly desire to bring all of life into conformity to Christ. That is a, that's a good desire, and we should pursue that. But even if we put the name of Christ, if we, if we put it on every city hall, on every business, on every website, and on every household, it will do nothing but increase our own damnation if we are biting and devouring and destroying one another all along the way. Dominion does not originate from the outside in. Dominion begins in God's people and expands from there. If we prove to be good stewards of ourselves and of our relationships, then He will give in time more responsibility. But we can't say, I want to be in charge. If I were in charge, X, Y, and Z would be different. Well, there's a reason why the Lord hasn't given that to us yet, because we're not ready. So do you want to see Huntsville, Alabama, Madison, Athens, Decatur, do you want to see this, the area submitted to Christ? Then use your words to fill the world with grace and truth. Absorb the work of the evil one the way that Jesus did. Actively love and bless those who oppose you. 
Now, does that sound a little bit crazy? Probably. But we serve the God who has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the weak things of the world to confound the mighty. So begin taking dominion by receiving the crown of thorns. Show the principalities and powers and all under their sway what the image of Christ looks like every day. The world was made to recognize her true king. When you bear the suffering crown, the healing virtue of Christ is poured out a little more. And the creation, the new creation, comes a little closer. Every act, every moment, every prayer. Give yourself to the work that's supernatural and the only thing that will actually change the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for this word. May we receive it and may we grow in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.